Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have promised your presence with your people forever. Lord, we are here to worship you this morning. We're here to seek you, Lord, and we pray that you would open your word to our hearts, to our understanding, that you would change us evermore to be like your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him we worship, it's him we praise, and we want him to be glorified. Thank you for your children, the great work of your hands gathered here today and throughout this valley. May you bless the hearing and the preaching of your word in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, for those of you uh, who are with us on a regular basis, we're normally in the book of Romans, working our way through uh, chapter 6 at the moment, but we are pausing for Christmas Day to take um, some time to look at the account of Christ and the wise men in particular in this passage, um, Matthew's gospel, the purpose of Matthew's gospel, if you will, the lens through which he's writing is to help us understand that Jesus Christ is king. He's king of kings. The other gospel writers have a slightly different lens that they write through. Um, Mark, for example, wants to show that Jesus is the servant, the suffering servant, Luke's gospel shows that Jesus is the Son of Man in His humanity. And John's gospel emphasizes the eternal deity of Christ, that He is the Son of God. But in Matthew's account, he wants us to see Jesus as King, and so that will come out in the passage today. There's really two points that I want to give you today as uh, an outline to help us track with this text. And it's really this, verse 1 through 10, you could define as the pursuit of the wise men, the pursuit. And then in verses 11 and 12, the posture of the wise men. So we want to look at who these wise men are, what it means to be a, a wise man. And my um, 
what I'd like to submit to you this morning is that there's really two key identifiers here. There's a pursuit that all wise men have, and there's a posture that all wise men have. So let's look at these in turn. The first is the pursuit of the wise men, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, initially I want to give uh, a comment just about the timing here. Um, when you read after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it's important to understand this was not immediate. This is not um, what we read in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is born and that evening um, the shepherds are out in the fields and the angel of the Lord appears to them. This is a time that's later. There's a time that's elapsed here. And actually, if you look at verse 7, this will help us with um, understanding the timing. In verse 7, it says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So there was a, a timing that Herod was concerned with, and, and that plays out in his evil plot, as we will see. Um, if you look at verse 16, when Herod issues his decree to massacre the children in Bethlehem and the surrounding territories, it says, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So it must have been that the wise men told Herod that the first appearance of the star had happened two years prior to their arrival in Jerusalem. And so it appears that Jesus has been in Bethlehem for the first two years of his life and only now is being inquired of. So this time is in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, who was Herod the king? Herod the king was known as an Idumean. Idumean is another word for an Edomite. Uh, Edom was the region that was to the south and to the east of Judea in the days of Jesus. And as you may know from Jewish history, from Israel's history, Israel had a kingly line that ended with King Zedekiah in the year 586 B.C. when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem they came in, they led Zedekiah out, they actually put out his eyes, and they led him into captivity. And as far as we know, he died as a captive in the land of Babylon. There were no kings after Zedekiah until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Babylon, in God's providence, later falls to the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C. And in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, we're told in the account of Ezra, that the Lord stirred the heart of King Cyrus to issue an edict that would allow the Jews to repopulate their own land and rebuild the temple. And so the temple is rebuilt in 516 B.C., 70 years after the city is laid waste by the Babylonians. But there are no kings. There's only governors for a number of years. In fact, about 100 years. The next 100 years are are covered with governors, Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. These are governors in the land, but there is no king in Israel. And after you get to about the year 400 B.C., there is prophetic silence that happens for the next 400 years. After the writing of Malachi, we have nothing until the Gospels um, in the, at the time of Christ. During that period, that intertestamental period, in the last 400 years before the birth of Christ, some significant things happened with regard to Israel and Palestine. 
Alexander the Great, as you know, had his many conquests throughout the region in the mid-350s and 330s, actually. Um, He died in 323 B.C., most believe that it was of typhoid fever. And after he died, there were four generals that took up power and control over the lands that Alexander had dominated himself through conquest. Two of these generals succeeded Alexander and basically used Palestine as a battlefield between the Ptolemies, who were the Egyptians, and the Seleucids, who were Greeks who inhabited the region of Syria as a Greek state. There was a Seleucian king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who in the year 165 led a number of terrible persecutions in Jerusalem, and in fact had uh, outlawed the Jewish religion, had made it illegal to read the law and study the law of God. He outlawed circumcision. You weren't allowed to circumcise your male child under the leadership of of Antiochus. And then, possibly most terribly, was that he forced the Jews to sacrifice pigs in the holy place and to worship Zeus. So there there was a desecration of the temple in the days of Antiochus, about nine terrible years. Later, there was a man named Judas Maccabee who revolted against Antiochus and actually defeated him and and his forces, even though they were greatly outnumbered. And it seemed that God was beginning to form a resurgence in Palestine, a golden era again. But alas, Judas Maccabees formed a deadly political alliance with Rome. And because of greed and infighting in the Maccabean household, Rome took control of Palestine. And it basically, basically became a tributary or a protectorate, or what some call a client state of Rome. Fast forward now to 63 B.C., Palestine is under the control of Rome and the general Pompey, after which Pompey is named to this day. A governor was then selected to rule in Palestine. His name was Antipater, and Antipater controlled Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding regions. And it was his son, Herod, who is known as the Great by surname, who was put in control of the lesser region of Galilee in the north. This son of Antipater, Herod the Great, was a governor and showed himself to be cunning. That means that he was good at getting stuff done through deceit and trickery. And after showing himself really a friend of Rome through deceitful means, he was appointed this title, King of the Jews. King of the Jews was the title given to Herod actually by Augustus Caesar and the Roman Senate. So here we have Herod the Great who comes on the scene ruling and reigning in the year 37 B.C. And all historians across the board agree with this, that he was both cunning and ruthless. Herod was willing and did kill members even of his own household in order to maintain his control that he was jealous for, that he was passionate for. And so here we have this evil tyrant who is reigning on the protectorate throne of Israel at the time that our Lord is incarnate, comes to the earth. Now, the next we have uh, in the account is these wise men. Who are these wise men from the east who come to Jerusalem? These wise men, the word in Greek means um, sorcerer. It also is translated wise men, and there's really two senses in the Scripture in which it's used. The, the word is 
magi or magi. That's why we call them the, the magi. In the bad sense, sorcerers are titled like Simon, um, the sorcerer, and Elemis, the sorcerer. These are wicked, evil men. But in the good sense, magi were, um, particularly by the Babylonians, by the Medes, by the Persians, they were using this term to refer to their wise men, to those who were the most learned in their culture, who were teachers and priests and physicians and astrologers and astronomers and even interpreters of dreams, people who could foretell the future with reliability. You could say that the Magi were priest sages, particularly in the Persian and Babylonian empire. And there's an interesting reference to these Magi that we have in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5 verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the, notice, magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Who is being talked about here in this account in Daniel 5? Well, it's none other than Daniel himself. Daniel was one who was born in Jerusalem, but was deported to Babylon during that captivity, that siege I mentioned. And he was a young man. He was probably 17 years old at the time. So he grew up in Babylon and we're told that he was trained in the schools of the wise men in Babylon. So Daniel himself was one of these magi, one of these magi. They were undoubtedly scholarly men. They were learned. They were um, very well versed in in the arts. Many, the curious arts, like astrology, but they were learned men in the wisdom of the world, and that's why they are called the wise men. Um, As regards the number of them, we don't know how many there were. Um, The Church of Rome has espoused that there were three, and I think they've even given them names, but the only uh, association with three is based on the gifts that they brought. There were three gifts. We don't know how many there were. Some accounts historically say that there were 12, some 14, others different numbers. It doesn't actually matter. What we're told, though, is that they came from the East. The East. And there, again, is a lot of speculation about these questions, which Scripture doesn't give definitive answers to. Um, Some uh, would say that they were Arabians because in the Scripture, in in the book of Judges, chapter 6, Scripture calls Arabians men of the East. Um, Matthew Henry, the commentator, pointed out this interesting uh, bit of information, I thought, that he said Arabians had done homage to David and Solomon, who were kings, just as these magi come to pay homage to Christ. And so it seems that there was a type that was cast in the Old Testament even earlier um, with Arabians coming and paying homage. So it's possible they were Arabians. And given the connection with Daniel, many think that these were Persian wise men who would have been from the kingdom of Parthian, the Parthian kingdom. Well, whatever the case may be, look what happens when they come to Jerusalem. Verse 2, they come saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Is there a box of Kleenex? Thank you. Um, he came saying, they came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Thank you. Now, excuse me. The Greek sense for this word saying is important. 
saying is in the continuous present tense. So the sense is this, that they came into town continuously asking throughout Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You might expect that after the king of the Jews has been born in Jerusalem and has been there for about two years, that word would have gotten out that the king has come. And there would have been no question as to where he is, but that's not what we find. These magi come into town and they're asking, they're knocking on multiple doors because nobody has the information. What does the Gospel of John tell us at the very beginning concerning this eternal Son of God, this Word of God who came to His own and His own received Him not? He came to the domain of humanity and they did not receive Him. And He came to His own within the domain of humanity, which was the Jews, His own people, and they didn't receive Him. Where is He who has been born King of the Jews is the question. And how did they know that someone had been born who was called king of the Jews? I mean, if they're, they're from a faraway kingdom, they're coming now to Jerusalem seeking a king who is not from their kingdom. And why would they be willing to make a trip that was likely hundreds of miles from home to come to Jerusalem on an animal, whether it's a dromedary like a camel or a horse? Why would they make this trip? Well, their answer is this, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, as we go through this account in this gospel, um, there's a recurring theme here. There's a lot of questions as to what these different components mean. There's been a lot of speculation over the years, even including about this star. Um, We want to be careful not to get outside the bounds of what the Lord tells us in his word. Um, but we want to explore as much as we can within His Word. So that's, God help us, that's our goal here. What was this star? Well, the word astir is the word for star, and it just, it can mean star. It can also mean a meteor. It can mean a common, a moving star. Some associate it with lightning, motion again, and light. The famous German astronomer Johannes Kepler noted that there was an unusual, what he called a conjunction of planets, the planets Jupiter, Saturn, and Saturn were together about the time that Jesus was reputed to be born. In fact, he dates it to the year 7 BC, and Kepler says that three times that year, in May, October, and December, um, in the constellation Pisces, the constellation of the fish, you have this unusual conjunction of these two planets, which would have formed a, a brilliant star-like image, a brightness in the sky. And he noted that in the following year, in 6 BC, Mars joined the conjunction. So it would have been just tremendous, a a spectacle that no one had ever seen before. And all astronomers, interestingly, are agreed as to this particular conjunction that Kepler noted, and, and that it happens once every 800 years. It's very, very rare. Now, whether that event coincides exactly with the birth of Christ, we can't know for sure. But here's what we do know. This would have been an unusual sighting for these magi. These magi were scholars. They were those who studied the skies, and it caused them to take action, right? What do we know about this location of the star? Well, this is a, a point of translation that's important. When they say, for we have seen his star in the east, the better translation there is we have seen his star in its rising, 
In other words, like a morning star, like the star of the dawn that comes over the horizon and gives light, initial light to the sky. The singular form of the word for east, Anatoli, is used there. As compared with earlier in verse 1, when it says these wise men came from the east, Anatolon, the, the plural is used there. So there's a distinction between location of east and this concept, almost a, an action of in its rising, the stars rising. And that's really what they saw. And the reason that's important is because if they were from the east and they saw a star that was in the eastern sky, they would not have come west to Palestine, right? They saw this star that's in its rising and they came to Jerusalem. That still leaves a question though. What's the connection between the star sighting and coming to Jerusalem to find the king of the Jews? You remember Daniel, right? He was a a magus, if that's the singular of magi. He would have shared the scriptures with the forefathers of these magi who came to Jerusalem now when he was in Babylon. They would have recorded those prophecies and then passed them down. So that's entirely possible. Also, I found this very interesting Perhaps these magi knew about the messianic prophecy of Balaam in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Listen to this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. The commentator Matthew Henry again Um, made an interesting insight. He said, Balaam came from the mountains of the east and was one of their wise men. So it's possible that they heard this prophecy of Numbers 24, 17 about a star arising out of Jacob, out of Israel. And that's how they made the connection between seeing this bright phenomenon in the sky and coming to Jerusalem seeking the king of the Jews. And they say, we've come to worship him. We've come to worship him. This word in the Greek is, is proskineo. It's reserved for the worship of God. It's a, a very unique word. It, in fact, was the word that Satan used when he tempted Christ in the wilderness. And he said, all these kingdoms of the world I will give you if you will bow down and what? Proskineo me, if you'll worship me. So this is a, a term of worship of divinity. And here they are saying, we've come to worship him. So their expectation was that this king of the Jews was clearly divine, was divine. They didn't have much revelation from the scriptures, but when they saw the star in its rising, it was enough, now notice, it was enough for them to pursue the king of the Jews. They had some initial light, and and that was enough to get them started on the journey to pursue the Christ child, even at a great distance and probably at a very great cost. That's important. See, this is an evidence of genuine faith, I believe. They are acting on the little bit of divine knowledge that they had in order to pursue the Messiah, the promised King. And brothers and sisters, this is what makes these magi truly wise men. Not their learning and all of the arts of Babylon, all the training and all the wisdom of this world that they had. No, what made them truly wise men was their pursuit of Jesus Christ. You'll note when they came into Jerusalem, they don't ask if he's been born. They believe that he has been born. There's faith here. They just say, where is he? Where is he? 
So they come to the city of the great King David to inquire about this greater king of the Jews. And look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, it makes a lot of sense when you begin to understand who we're dealing with in this tyrant Herod and how he came to power that he was troubled. That he was troubled that there was another who was called King of the Jews, the same title that he had, that he had achieved through great cunning and deception and alliance with Rome. He had been reigning since 37 B.C., and likely this is probably 5 B.C., at this time when the Magi come into Jerusalem. So he'd been reigning for 32 years. He's power-hungry, and here comes a baby with the same title that he has. Now, if he were thinking clearly, he would realize this is not a threat that would happen anytime soon. This child needs to grow. There's no immediate threat. But this is one who is blinded by his own pride and self-ambition. And so all he, all he sees and all he does is rage, a jealous rage to maintain power at all cost. And it's interesting, the text says, in all Jerusalem with him, they were troubled as well. Why would all Jerusalem have been troubled with him? Well, the commentator Edersheim, in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, gave a good insight, I thought, on this. He said, quote, they knew only too well the character of Herod, and what the consequences would be to them of sympathy with any claimant to the royal throne of David, end quote. In other words, they knew that Herod was a wicked, ruthless man, and if he was unhappy, he was going to make everyone else unhappy, right? So they would prefer to live under the cruelty of a tyrant like Herod than to have the Messiah. That's interesting. If they could have just less trouble and less inconvenience, they would rather live, subside, subsist under a wicked man who would rule over them than have the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the greater truth here is that Jerusalem was in a spiritual darkness by and large. Yes, there were people who were looking for the consolation of Israel like Simeon and like Anna. They'd waited a long time with expectation. But for the most part, the people in Jerusalem were in spiritual darkness. And yes, they would take a Messiah who could offer them freedom from Rome's political oppression, but they were not interested and had no place for a Messiah of God who came to save his people from their sins. The wicked always prefer darkness to light because their deeds are evil. They don't want their wickedness exposed, and so they're comfortable in the darkness. I want you to notice what Herod does next in verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, he gathers two groups of people, chief priests and scribes. Who were they? Well, the chief priests were basically the teachers of the law. They were the experts in the law. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7 says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So they knew the law very well. And the scribes also knew the law very well because their function was to write down word for word all of the writings of the Old Testament. So they were experts in the law as well. And Herod makes inquiry of these people, these experts in the law, where the Christ is to be born. Now that's interesting that he calls him the Christ. Herod himself must have known something about the prophecies concerning Christ in order to inquire about him by that title. 
And notice the answer. This is a unanimous answer from the chief priests and scribes. So they said to him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will, be sh- who will shepherd my people Israel. He's quoting, they are quoting the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And the unanimous answer is Bethlehem. The Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a little town about five miles to the south of Jerusalem, not very far at all. It means the house of bread, Bethlehem. Very fitting title for the place where the bread of life is to be born. And this was not a hidden knowledge that the Christ would come to Bethlehem. Great in significance, even though little in number, few in number in terms of people compared to Jerusalem and the other cities of Judea, but very significant because the king, David, had been born in Bethlehem. So this greater king prophesied in Micah 5.2 is also to be born in Bethlehem. And we see in John's Gospel, in John chapter 7, that the people generally had an understanding that the Christ was to be born in Jerusalem, the same town that David was born in, Bethlehem of of Judea. Now, there's an irony here. Herod is gathering the wise men, so-called, of Israel, who knew God's word very well, but who were really fools because they had no faith they had a veil that was upon their hearts, like Paul says to the Colossians in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3. They read the word of God, but they couldn't discern its meaning. Its spiritual understanding was hidden from them. And so the wise men of Israel are truly fools because they are indifferent to the scriptures. They're indifferent. Christ is in their backyard, five miles away, and it's been two years. And no one has gone to check with their own eyes to see if these things are so. Now, you contrast that with the Magi. Very different story. Though they are comparatively unlearned and ignorant men with regard to the Scriptures, yet they have a genuine faith. They follow the little bit of light that the Lord has given them to bring them to Christ. And that makes them truly wise in the eyes of God. Now, verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. This is a private meeting to ascertain some key information that Herod desperately wants. And what is it that he's after? Well, we see from verse 13 of chapter 2 that he only has one plan in his heart, and that is to destroy the child. To destroy the child. And the Magi, as I mentioned earlier, they must have told Herod that the first appearance of the star was two years prior to their arrival because Herod decrees to kill all the baby boys two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions to make sure that the Christ child would be executed, that there'd be no chance for a competing king on the throne. Interestingly, I mean, if if the timeline is correct... And we, historians would agree that Herod the Great died in March or April of 4 B.C. And if the first star appeared two years prior to that, that puts Christ's birth at 6 B.C., thereabouts, which coincides with this conjunction of planets that Kepler talked about. But really, more importantly, it shows that Jesus had been in Bethlehem for two years. And though the prophecy of Micah was widely known, not one of them, 
Not one of the priests, the scribes, not Herod himself, not people from Jerusalem. We don't read about anybody who go with the Magi to this short distance, over the short distance to Bethlehem to see the Christ child. And I believe there's another factor in play as to why they they don't come. We're going to get to that as, as we unravel the text here. So Herod determines the time the star first appeared. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now we know that Herod has no interest in worshiping this child. He has only destruction in his heart planned for this child. And this is just another example of the cunning of Herod. How he uses trickery to achieve his political purposes. Verse 9, when they heard the king... They departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, anytime you read, and behold, or lo, in the scriptures, it's like a flag. Hey, I'm calling your attention to something important here. What is that? The star which they had seen in the east, which again is translated in its rising, went before them. Very interesting verb used in the Greek here. It's proago. It means to lead before. To lead before. Very similar, if you remember, in our study of Romans chapter 5, when we learned that Christ is the one who gives us access into the presence of God, into this uh, glory of God in which we, or the grace of God in which we stand. Romans 5.2, I believe. The access is, the, is a very similar word. It's prosago instead of proago. Same idea. It's one that leads another into something, who goes before and leads, just as Christ leads us to the Father. This star is leading the Magi. And, and this is really the first mention of the star directing them. Before, all that we're told in the account is they saw the star in its rising. Here we actually have movement The star is leading them. It's going before them. And what is it doing? It's coming till it stands over where the young child was, up above him. Seems like a pretty clear indicator. Now, I'd like to have you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60, which is our corporate reading this morning. And I believe that there are some helps in Isaiah chapter 60 as we think about this account in Matthew chapter 2. Isaiah 60, let's look at um, the first two verses here. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you, upon you. Same idea as stood over you in Matthew 2.9. Now, who is being talked about here with the pronoun you? Arise, shine, for your light has come. But the Lord will arise over you. Who is he talking about? Look at verse 14. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you, what? The city of the Lord, Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. So this seems to be addressing the you to the city of the Lord, to Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Very interesting that that phrase is used, the Holy One of Israel. Do you remember in our 
a call to worship in Isaiah 49. The Holy One of Israel is a reference to the Lord Himself, a reference to the Lord. And so I believe what we have here is really um, an answer to the question of what the star was. I believe this text answers the question of what the star was. And what was it? Isaiah 60, verse 2, But the Lord will arise over you, Zion, Holy One of Israel, and His glory will be seen upon you. I believe this star is the glory of the Lord that is risen upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true Zion, the spiritual Zion. He is the city of God, the Holy One of Israel. Now, follow this. The star is now leading them. Does that remind us of a concept that we know from the Old Testament of a light leading the children of Israel? It does, right? God led his people as a pillar of fire by day, or excuse me, as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the wilderness. That's how he led them, as a light that would direct them, a great light, what was called the Shekinah glory of God. And so this glory of God is a leading glory. And then also, the Shekinah, you remember, it settled in the tabernacle. When Israel, this is before Israel had a, a temple. They had a big tent in the wilderness. And the glory of God would settle over this tabernacle and meet with Moses and Aaron. And he settled specifically where? Over the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark. His presence was there, signified by the glory, the bright, shining light that no one could look at. And what's inside of this ark? There were three things that we need to remember. The two tablets of stone, which had the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and then there was manna, the manna from heaven that the Lord used to feed the children of Israel. And so what is this imagery showing us? That the glory of God stands over, rests over His Word, the tablets, over His branch, which is fruitful, and over God's bread from heaven that the people didn't recognize at first. They said, what is this? Manna, that's what manna means, what? Brothers and sisters, who is that that's being described in all three of those scenarios? Is that not Jesus Christ? Every time it's Christ. He is the eternal Word of God. John chapter 1. He is the branch of righteousness that comes out of David. Jeremiah chapter 23. He is the bread of life. John chapter 6. Consider John 6.44. No one can come to me, Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So what's the Father's function in John 6.44? It's to draw people to Jesus. Just as the star is drawing the Magi to Jesus, so the Father draws us to Christ today. That's what I want you to see. How? Because his star, which is the light of his truth, his word, where his Shekinah glory dwells, is pointing us to Christ. Did you know that the Apostle Peter in the New Testament acknowledges this star that we're reading about in Matthew 2? Consider what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy 
he's, he's contrasting his experience, Peter, James, and John, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and Jesus transfigured himself. He showed his glory as bright white light, blinding light. And, and Peter says, I saw that, and yet we have a more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed, to pay attention to, to obey, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the, here it is, morning star arises in your hearts. Morning star. The same star in its rising is not rising in the sky literally for us. It is rising where now? In our hearts. Who is this morning star? Jesus himself says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So the word of God is pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is that bright and morning star. You remember when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But these are they, the scriptures, which speak of me. They testify of me, all of them. It's all about Christ. So scripture is the light that shines in a dark place. Where is that dark place? The heart of sinful man. It shines in the heart of sinful man and gives light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The stars that we have in the sky and this star that the wise men saw are all signs. They're pointers to Christ. They're examples of light shining in the darkness. That's the purpose of the stars. God gave us stars as a perpetual reminder of his faithfulness. The stars are there every day. They don't move. When you read about the false teachers that Jude is rebuking in his letter, he says they are like wandering stars. They're like comets. They're like flashes of light. They look like the real thing, but they're not reliable. They're not fixed in a point in the sky like the Lord's stars are. His stars do not move. And they're there to show his faithfulness and to show his grace. His grace that there's light still in the darkness. Because today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. So this light continues to shine to show, look at my son. He is the true light from heaven that shines. Do you see him? Can you see him with the eyes of faith this morning? You see, when Scripture brings us to Christ, the day dawns and the morning star begins to rise in our hearts. And like the sun that rises in the sky, it will continue to shine brighter and brighter in our hearts as we grow in grace until one day all that is partial, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, all that is partial, prophecy, knowledge, these things are in part right now. One day those things are going to be done away and when the perfect is come. There's a lot of talk about what that means. I think this applies right here. What is this perfect that comes? It's when Jesus will be manifest to us in his second coming and we will see him face to face. We are growing in knowledge of him day by day in our sanctification, but one day all prophecy and all scripture, or excuse me, all prophecy and knowledge will pass away because we will see him as he is. We will know him because we will be known of him. Back to verse 10 in Matthew 2, when they saw the star, I want you to see their response. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Exceedingly great joy. Now, the way this reads in the Greek is they rejoiced with exceedingly great 
great joy. It seems a little bit overkill, but it's important, and it's, it's there for this reason. Why would seeing this star that they had already seen cause such joy? if they had lost sight of the star, unless they had lost sight of the star for a time. You see, this star gave them light to come to Jerusalem. But we don't know how long the star shined in the sky to bring them to Jerusalem. We don't know those timings. What we know is that it shined for a time, they saw it. And then it seems that they lost sight of it for the the recent time when they came to Jerusalem. And so when they see the star again, they are overjoyed. They're rejoicing. The star is back. God has given them this initial light. Remember, something they'd never seen before. They are putting together the sign of the star together with whatever prophecies they had heard. They begin to pursue the Messiah. And after they lose sight of the star, they continue pursuing. They continue seeking. They continue asking. Does this sound like familiar? Ask, seek, knock, and it shall be opened to you. Keep pursuing. They followed the light that they had, and and upon their obedience to come to Christ, God gave them more light here. He renews His promise to them that He is with them. He's confirming His presence with them. That's why they're overjoyed. And He's going to do that because He's leading them all the way to their Son, to His Son. Here's a question that now comes up in my mind, and maybe in yours as well. When the Magi saw this star again from Jerusalem, Why didn't anyone else see the star? I mean, if the star makes a brilliant appearance now in Jerusalem where the Magi are, why isn't this something that everybody sees and everybody follows to the point where Jesus is in the house? Well, I believe that God reveals himself and revealed himself uniquely to the wise men just as he had to the shepherds in the fields previously the night of Jesus' birth. Not everyone saw that. It was given to those whom God intended to give it to. He reveals himself in Scripture to the humble and to the lowly, to shepherds who were the lowest of society out in the fields, to the humble also who are in faraway lands, to these magi who really represent the first fruits of the Gentile nations. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to Raise up the tribes of Israel. I will also give you a light to the Gentiles. And so, I think what happens here, what may happen here, is that God brings a thick darkness upon those in Israel that were not anticipating waiting for His Messiah. And so, really, it was just the Magi who saw this star leading them. You remember in the Old Testament in the account of the Exodus that there were these ten great plagues that God had brought upon Pharaoh. One of those plagues was blindness or was a darkness, a thick darkness in fact. And God put darkness between his people and the Egyptian people so that the Egyptian people couldn't even see one another. But God's people were told had light in their dwellings. This is remarkable. This is miraculous. This is something that God is able to do. He gives light to his people while blinding those who are not his people, his enemies. And ironically, here, in this case, in Jerusalem, when the Magi come, it's the Jews who are in thick darkness, right? They couldn't see. And God's glory is revealed to the Gentiles. 
He came to his own and his own received him not. Hmm. I mean, the Jews had light. They had the scriptures. They were extremely privileged. But again, they were blind and hardened, so they couldn't even see though Messiah was in their backyard. All of that is really the, the first point I was trying to make about the pursuit of these wise men to bring them to Christ. The second point is a much shorter point. It's the posture. Look at verse 11, the posture of these wise men. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They come into the house. This is interesting. The baby, Mary, they're, they're no longer in the stable. They're not, Jesus isn't in the manger in this scene. I had read this so many times just assuming that it's the same picture as we have in Luke 2. It's not. They come into the house and they see the young child with Mary, his mother. Now, remember, the focus of Matthew is to present Christ as who? King, right? The focus here is the young child with Mary, his mother. Christ is first. And I want you to see what happens here. Um, the word that's used for young child is pedion. It means child or a little boy. That's different from the term that Luke uses in chapter 2 of his gospel, verse 12, where he says, this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Babe, that, that's the word for newborn, an infant. It's not the word he uses here. Here he uses the word pedion. It means a little boy who could have been a couple of years old. And they fell down and worshipped him. Now note, they didn't fall down and worship her. The Catholic Church gets very confused on this. The worship is focused on Christ. He is the King of kings. And they fall down prostrate. That means on their faces. And again, the word proskineo is used here, worshipped him. Now, among the Orientals, among the Persians, this is, I thought this was interesting, in terms of custom, what they did when they were worshiping was they would fall down on their faces and touch their foreheads to the ground in a gesture of extreme and profound reverence. They touched their foreheads to the ground. And so this is what they are doing here, these magi. They're bowing themselves and touching their faces to the ground, worshiping. Again, that word is reserved for the worship of God. Worshiping God. They didn't do this for Herod, the king. What did they do with Herod? They cooperated with him. They heard him. They went as he asked them to go, and they likely would have come back to him had the Lord not intervened and told them not, told them not to. But they worshiped Christ. And, and why would they worship the king of the Jews, of another kingdom from the one they're from? You see, these magi were not just bowing before the king of the Jews, but they recognized by faith that they were bowing before the king of kings the king of the universe. They knew that he was their king. This is genuine faith in action, loved ones, what we see with the Magi here. And I want you to see what genuine faith does. It always does this. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So note the order here. They first present themselves, they bow themselves to the ground, then they present their gifts to him. Does that sound like something we were just studying in Romans chapter 6? Verse 13, do not present your members as instruments, weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves, your whole selves to God 
as those who are alive from the dead and present your members, the parts of your body, your mind, your emotions, your will, all of you, as weapons of righteousness unto God. That's what these magi are doing here. And some will um, try to ascribe significance to the particular gifts, right? The gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. The gold, the gold is the most valuable of all metals. It's regarded for royalty. It's meant for royalty. So that would point us to Christ as the king of kings, as the royal king. Frankincense, or just incense, is what is offered only to God. So that points to Christ as the Son of God, as divine. The myrrh, myrrh is interesting because myrrh is used in a couple of different ways. Myrrh was the first ingredient in the special holy anointing oil. It, had, it was a perfume. It had a wonderful fragrance. But myrrh was also mixed with wine and made into a bitter drug substance that was given to crucifixion criminals who were on the cross to deaden the pain. And Christ, of course, would not have any of that. And it was also part of the myrrh and aloes, the burial spices that Nicodemus um, brought to Christ in a great profusion at his burial. So this would point to, the myrrh would point to his humanity, to the fact that he was a Savior who came to die for our sins. So he's the king, he's divine, and he is also the Son of Man who lays down his life for us. But there's something more that I want you to see in these gifts rather than just the, the particular gifts and what their, their meaning might be. I want us to look at this as a whole because I think there's a richness to this that we can see. Back in Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah chapter 60, look with me at verse 3. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they are gathered together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. What do these gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh represent? The wealth of the Gentiles. The best of their countries, what they had to offer. And I want you to see in verse 6, it says, The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries, the camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba. These are eastern nations, Arabia and the Persian kingdoms. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim what? The praises of the Lord. The praises of the Lord. So, what is this gift, or what are these gifts that they are bringing that are the best of their nations? Is it not their praise? It is our praise. Here's the connection. Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Or David in Psalm 51, 17 and 18, or 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David again in Psalm 40 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you don't, you don't require. 
Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. In other words, what is it that the Lord wants? Does he want burnt sacrifice, animals to be offered and burnt literally? He says he wants obedience. He wants righteousness. He wants humility and brokenness over our own sin. He wants praise and thanksgiving to come from our lips that originates from our hearts. That's what he's interested in. That is, I believe, what these gifts represent, that we are to offer King Jesus ourselves and everything that we have. The Lord wants all of us, brothers and sisters. He wants our minds, our affections, our wills, our resources, our time, our everything. Let me ask you a question. Is anything less suitable for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Absolutely not. This helps us to understand the great commandment, the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. Here is the Christmas message, brothers and sisters. Let's not miss it. God gave the gift of His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave, gift, His only begotten Son, that anyone who believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gift of Christmas. The gift of Jesus Himself And those who are truly wise recognize him. Why? Because they've been given the gift of faith by the Lord. They've been led by the light of God's revelation, his word, which leads them directly to Jesus. And what do they do when they find Christ? They do like the Magi did. They bow down with their faces to the ground and they worship him. And then they bring their best to him. They give them, give him everything that they have. That is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, one more thing in Isaiah 60 here I have to point out. Look at verse 7. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. This is language of sacrifice. The flocks, the rams. Who are these rams that will ascend with acceptance on my altar? Doesn't this bring to mind Romans 12, 1? My brethren, I beseech you, I beg you, by the mercies of God that you present yourselves, your whole bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is your priestly service. We are those rams of Nebaioth that are ascending the altar of God to lay down our lives for his service. Now, back to Matthew 2 for just a moment here. And I'm not going to spend much time on verse 12, except just to say this. In verse 12, we're told, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. You might think that these Gentiles from the east, having found the Christ, would not want to leave him, would stay to worship him, perhaps would go to the temple to be with him. But we don't hear about them anymore in the account after this. They're gone. And you say, well, did that mean that they lost faith? Actually, quite the contrary. They were obedient to the divine warning, just as they had been obedient to God 
to come to Jerusalem. Now they're obedient to the Lord to depart another way. Because had they gone back the same way that they came, no doubt Herod would have killed them. Does the Lord know how to preserve his own from temptation and from danger? He does. He does. They didn't need to be with the Lord Jesus in person anymore. They had come. They had seen him. They had believed. Christ is now with them in their hearts by faith. He is that morning star that is rising in their hearts just as he is rising in our hearts this morning. So my friends, this morning I have to ask this question. Which of the three types of people that we talked about do you find yourself to be? Are you perhaps like the scribes and the chief priests who maybe know the word of God very well but are indifferent to it and unwilling to come to Christ and worship him? And give yourselves body, soul, and spirit as living sacrifices to him? Or are you perhaps more like King Herod who, with a jealous fit of rage to maintain control over his life and to rule his life and to rule over others, would not allow any other king to supplant his own authority and kingship in his own heart? I pray that we are like the Magi, those who have seen the star, the brightness of the glory of God in the Word of God, pointing to the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. And having been led to Him, we are worshiping Him even now. We are the truly wise men, women, and children of this world in God's sight, and that's what matters. The Lord does not reveal Himself to the proud and to the mighty and to the self-sufficient. Remember, He revealed Himself to the humble in Israel, to the lowly shepherds, He revealed himself to the humble in the faraway lands of the Gentiles, these magi who are willing to travel great distances and at great cost to come and worship the king. I pray that you have seen the star this morning, that the day has dawned already in your heart and is continually rising in your hearts. And if that's the case, take heart, my friend, brother and sister, take heart. You are the truly wise of God. The pursuit of the wise always pursues Christ. The posture of the wise always bows before him in humility, worship, and praise. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, because even though we haven't seen you, You have given us a love for yourself by giving us a a heart transplant, taking out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, a new covenant heart that, Lord, is tender toward you, that hears your word and hungers for more. Lord, may we, like these wise men, come, pursue Christ as our lifelong journey With the light that we've been given, may we continue to hunger and thirst for more. And Lord, as we come to different checkpoints, we know that you are with us and you are continually adding light, rising in our hearts as the morning star, confirming your presence with us, glorifying your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the incomparable gift of Christ who gave himself willingly for us, who set aside his glory for a time, veiling himself in flesh, taking on humanity to represent us who were unable to save and redeem ourselves. We who have been cursed with the curse of the law, 
who were unable to keep any point of the law and who were under condemnation, you rescued by sending your son to lay down his life for us, to take the full punishment that we deserve for our sin on that cross at Calvary, drinking the cup of your wrath to the last drop. And because of that, Lord, we can be forgiven all our sins, and we praise you for that. Past, present, and future, all wiped out. And Lord, not only that, but you've given us the perfect righteousness of your Son who always obeyed you, never once omitting anything he ought to do. Father, thank you for the perfect obedience of your Son that you have given to us by grace, that we are justified, made right in your sight. And Lord, thank you that you don't leave us there. Thank you that you've sent your Spirit into our hearts to change us and transform us from within to be more like your Son in our sanctification growing us each one in grace and knowledge until that day when the perfect has come and there will be no more darkness, there will be no more sin, we will cast off these bodies of death and will be given new bodies. Bodies that will live forever perfect like your sons, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful salvation we have. May we take this message of Christmas with us in our hearts every day and live it and share the good news with others. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.